Hello, everybody. Welcome back to In The Loop. We are a podcast by Texas Guadalupe, the University of Texas Hyperloop team. I am one of your co-hosts, Gavin Nader. I am the head of business, and I am a senior studying economics here at UT. I'm your other co-host, David Spittler. I'm the head of engineering for Texas Guadalupe and currently pursuing my master's in mechanical engineering at UT. So today we have a very special guest. Um, it's going to take me a while to get through his introduction because he's got a long resume. Um, but we have Mr. Onler. Mr. Onler has 35 years of experience in engineering, management, and leadership, both in government and in industry. Uh, he served 28 years with NASA in many different roles. Um, while at NASA, he was the recipient of NASA's Outstanding Leadership Medal and Exceptional Achievement Medal. Um, Matt eventually left NASA as the Assistant Director of Engineering at Johnson Space Center. Matt then went on to serve as a senior executive at Gafarian Technologies and then started his own robotics company, Houston Mechatronics. He is now the Senior Technology Officer at Axiom Space. Matt, how you doing? Great. Pleasure to be uh, here. Yeah, so our first interaction was actually a, I remember now, it was a required student engineering council meeting that I had to go to. And I had no idea you were going to be there. You just had to go there for hours. Um, so I kind of had it on the background and then they introduced you and I'm an avid follower of space. And so when I heard, you know, CTO of Axiom Space, I was like, whoa, what? This is so random. So I'm very glad that I was forced to go to that meeting that, that one time. Um, cool. But yeah, thank you for being here and I'm super excited. Awesome. Um, so to get started, I kind of just want to learn about your early days and sort of how you got interested in STEM and in space exploration. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, uh, so I uh, grew up in, in Casper, Wyoming, which is uh, the largest city in Wyoming, but it's only 50,000 people. So pretty small town um, and uh, not exactly a place you would think that someone would come and uh, come out of and, and join NASA. But I was uh, six years old and I remember watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon on my parents' black and white television and, and really never wanted to do anything else. Um, in fact, I, I re actually remember having this feeling of anxiety that here we were putting a man on the moon and I was stuck in the first grade. Um, so really uh, was interested in space from that point on. And, and in general, interested in learning. So I, I was always curious about uh, learning. I liked history and math and science and, and really all the subjects in school. Uh, but uh, um, I really liked being able to solve problems. And I thought it was amazing that you could um, take an equation and predict, uh, you know, how high a ball would go or a, or how far a cannonball would go with, uh, you know, some basic equations. So I was really fascinated with solving problems and fascinated with space. So were your parents engineers or were they involved in STEM? No, not at all. And actually I was the first uh, person in my family to go to college. Uh, so my dad was a, a master electrician, but always was building things, you know, and tinkering on stuff. And, um, but uh, so I think, in many ways, they encouraged me, but didn't really know how to guide me. Um, so had fortunately lots of folks along the way that uh, helped get me where I, where I was. Wow. So growing up, was the end goal always to end up at NASA or some space related company? Or was there early on some question as to what route you might take? No, I, I really wanted, I wanted to be an astronaut. And so uh, NASA was, really always the path 
um, it wasn't always clear how I got there. Um, and actually it, it turned out to be relatively random. Um, I went to the University of Colorado because they had a aerospace program. Um, and at the time it graduated more uh, astronauts than, than anyone else. Um, and while I was at the University of Colorado, I think my junior year, I happened to be living in a dorm that half of the dorm was career services. And so I happened to be checking my mail one day and saw uh, a flyer for uh, applying to the NASA uh, co-op program or the intern program. And so I did. And, um, you know, the next uh, year I was uh, a co-op at NASA. And, and at, the, at that time, that was generally how people hired on to NASA. You, you, you started in the intern program. So I did a couple intern tours and then uh, after graduation started full time. But it was sort of, a, you know, I, I didn't I, I knew I wanted to end up at NASA, but didn't realize that that was the path, you know, through the co-op program. And so I was a bit lucky to to be living in that dorm and happen to walk by that flyer one day. So when you first got to NASA, sort of what was going on at NASA? Um, was it the space shuttle program? And then sort of what was the first big project that you worked on? Yeah, so it was uh, the summer of 1986. And so um, the Challenger accident had just happened in January. And so one of my first jobs was um, at that time, we were looking at different ways to improve the shuttle so that um, it would be safer. You know, so we were looking at um, different ejection seat modifications and a thing called a tractor rocket, which is a you strap yourself onto a rocket and it pulls you out of the cabin if there was a problem. So those early um, uh, years were doing a lot of that kind of work, trying to do, trying to find different solutions for um, improving the shuttle safety from a crew standpoint. And eventually did they include ejection seats in the shuttle? No, uh, you know, we looked at it pretty hard and, and decided that it was just too hard and too costly and, and too difficult to really make those improvements. But we ended up making one improvement, which was um, called the escape pole. So in certain abort situations, if the shuttle could get under control, but um, you weren't going to be able to make it to a runway, you would put the uh, shuttle in a, in a gliding flight and you'd get down to uh, altitude under 25,000 feet, you'd blow the hatch, this escape pole would, um, would come out of the hatch and then uh, each crewman would hook themselves to the pole and slide out. And the pole uh, allowed you to get out of the hatch and not hit the wing. Uh, so it got you out and underneath the wing. And so that particular um, device was put in all the remaining shuttle flights. I remember seeing tests about that and it's just a crazy concept. Yeah. Um, I also remember, I think there was like a couple or maybe one like abort to orbit. That was the only one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember looking at this problem and it's crazy because there's such a small window for like aborts. Yeah. Um, and then I remember reading that if they'd work to do ejection seats, like it, the speed at what they were going would have been like near deadly. Right. Um, right. So I can only yeah, imagine was... like, how tough it was to try to create solutions to that problem because that's a big one. Yeah. yeah. And um, that was a lot of the analysis I did. So I, I was initially in um, 
what was called the aeroscience branch. And so doing trajectory analysis and, and those sort of things. And, and you're right, the, the window uh, to eject from the shuttle is pretty small. You're either going way too fast, uh, very, you know, very soon after, la after launch, you're, you're going way too fast or you're just at way too high of an altitude to, to eject. Yeah. But it is why, you know, there's so much effort on the Orion space capsule uh, and why it has, uh, you know, an ejection capability. Basically, the you know, entire um, capsule can be pulled off during a board. Yeah. It's a lot easier with a small capsule, right? Not a huge right. one. Right. So, um, so after, how long did you stay with that program? Uh, we probably worked that for about two years. Um, you know, it was about two years before we returned to flight. And um, so worked that probably most of that time. And at the same time, I had other projects we were looking at building a, a vehicle that would go to Mars and grab a sample and then return with the sample. It was called the Mars Rover Sample Return Mission. Um, it was always, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was always a bit underfunded. So, um, you know, we'd work on it a while and then the program would kind of be revamped and we'd work on it some more. But those were some fun times too because we were really looking at some interesting problems like um, when you go to Mars, um, Mars has just enough atmosphere to be a, a real pain, right? It's not quite enough to, to really use it, um, you know, to, to adequately reentry, but there's enough of it there that you have to, to deal with it. And so we were looking at different methods of uh, what were called aero capture, where we would skim into the atmosphere use the atmosphere to slow the vehicle down and then pop back out into orbit. And then we were looking at that same technique when we returned uh, to Earth. Because when you're returning to Earth from Mars, you're going about 36,000 miles an hour. So you're about 10,000 miles an hour too fast to be in orbit. So you would enter the atmosphere, um, use the atmosphere to bleed off that um, extra velocity and then pop back out into uh, low Earth orbit. So it was a way to slow the vehicle down without having to carry any fuel to do it. I've employed that technique many times in Kribble space program. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so is so that actually one like of the being... first like Mars sample return mission designs? It probably was. Yeah. Um, it, uh, you know, still hasn't been done yet. Yeah. In progress. Yeah. Um, so like at any one point, how many different projects at NASA are you involved in? Because it seems like, I mean, it's a couple and then you just keep jumping around. Yeah. Yeah. And that group that I was in, which was called the advanced programs office, we were always looking at that sort of leading edge or, um, trying to solve, um, hard problems like the crew escape system or, you know, how would you put ejection seats, but, and then always looking forward, like um, advanced mission design, like the Mars rover sample return. So there was always several um, mission concepts we were looking at or problems that would come to that branch to, to try to solve. Wow. That sounds like an exciting division to be in. They just throw like the hardest problems at you and you get a workshop. Yeah. Them. Yeah. yeah, it was. Um, so working so on all these projects that um, were kind of in the early development phase of would they or would they not go on to be a, a full mission cycle, 
was there any program that you had wished would have continued on and become like a full a full scale test? Yeah, and that one would probably be the uh, it was called the Aerosist flight experiment. So we were gonna we were gonna fly this vehicle up on the shuttle, and uh, it had a rocket motor on it, so it would um, accelerate to a simulated um, lunar return or Mars return velocity. So it would be at somewhere around 35,000 miles an hour. And then it would go into the atmosphere and demonstrate this aero braking technique. And so that project we worked on for a long time, we had hardware being built and, um, you know, the <clears throat> mission was <clears throat> set aside on the shuttle to fly it, and then eventually was canceled. So <clears throat> that was part of at NASA that you had to get used to was that there were a lot of programs that never went all the way. Um, you know, NASA is generally underfunded. And so it's just hard to, to get a lot of the missions accomplished. Was it ever tough for you to, was that ever in the back of your mind? Like when you started on a new project, like this could get canceled? Yeah. <clears throat> and, and actually that's what happened probably about five years into my career. And uh, I think this is a, a great lesson and I try to manage in the same way, but I went to my boss and said, you know, every year we start up a, a new attempt at the Mars Rover sample return or Aerosys flight experiment. And, and every year it's, we make a little progress and then it's canceled or it's, or it's changed into something else. And, and so I told him that I, I didn't want to do that anymore. I want to do something else. And, um, and so um, he helped me find that uh, other thing, uh, which was a, a flight experiment called Spifex. And <clears throat> I always remember that. And I always try to manage all my people the same way that, you know, it's important that um, you give people opportunities and that uh, you don't hold on to them and try to keep them, you know, you, you help them grow and find other opportunities. And so um, I always thought that, <clears throat> Uh, I admired the way he managed uh, the people that in his organization and always encouraged them and helped them, you know, find other uh, things that were interesting. And so yeah, I had a, kind of a question along yeah. those lines. Um, a lot of engineers don't like to dive into like the leadership aspect or like the management aspect, but you obviously have a very um, long management experience and leadership experience and even entrepreneurship. So I'm wondering for you, like as an engineer, what excited you about doing management and entrepreneurship and sort of why do you think that's such a good facet to go into? Yeah. Um, so first I always encourage young people to stay technical for at least five years, you know, head down and solving problems and working solid works or whatever the particular discipline is and really become an expert at that. And then if your interest is in project management or managing people, then, you know, you have this sort of base of, of a good technical background. And, and I probably did that about 10 years or so and got the chance to work on a lot of different things. Um, so I had a pretty broad background, but to answer your question more directly, I, when I started, um, my career, I was, you know, a math and science person and I loved equations and green engineering paper, but there became a point where I really became fascinated with the squishy people stuff. And how do you 
manage people and how do you marshal resources? How do you lead and get people all going in the same direction? How do you solve a lot of those kind of problems? Because those problems have to be solved too. And, uh, and I even like, you know, problems where, you know, Sally doesn't want to sit beside Bob and, and working through those sort of silly things, but helping people find, um, you know, their best, uh, self and, 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 uh, grow in their career. So I don't know exactly when it happened, but there was just a point where I, I really became interested in, in being able to lead people and, and, uh, and really shape, um, where the organization went, uh, in, in a different way. Is that transition pretty natural at NASA to be able to move into a leadership position like that? Um, no. And, and I'd say actually NASA probably doesn't do it very well. Generally, the people that um, get picked for those positions are often the best technical person, you know, in that group, which is a terrible way to pick leadership. Um, you know, if you look at a typical baseball manager, some of the best baseball managers were marginal professional players, right? Um, people like Michael Jordan don't make a very good coach. You know, people that are really good at something don't always make a, uh, the best coach. And so I'd say NASA doesn't do it very well in terms of um, who they go and pick. But one thing they do do well is the training and, and all the opportunities to develop um, as the leader. You know, there's just tons of training that NASA um, invests in. Um, they send you off to, you know, week-long um, uh, training courses and, and just a lot of opportunities to develop as a leader uh, once you've chosen that path. So I know you also went and got your MBA at the University of Houston. Would you say that that was a very important step in your growth as a leader? Uh, I know there's some debate nowadays as to the importance of getting an MBA versus the actual just on-site experience. How would you kind of like weigh that? Yeah. Yeah. And I did, I got my MBA because I did think I had always been entrepreneurial and, and knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And so the MBA was um, a way to see the world in a different way um, and, and to learn about things that I was also curious about, like finance and marketing and economics and those sort of things. So it was, I think, a valuable experience. Um, and, I, and I think all kinds of learning are, are valuable experiences. You know, whether you need an MBA or not, I don't know. But there is really some very valuable, specific things that you learn, um, you know, about finance or economics or marketing that I think are very valuable if, if uh, you want to go into the business world. Um, and then in terms of leadership, it probably, I think those things sort of help um, broaden your perspective so that you know, you can, one thing a leader has to do is you have to be able to relate to the person's uh, individual circumstances or issues that they have. And so it probably helps me, um, you know, in an organization like today where I'm dealing with the marketing folks or the finance folks and kind of understanding what their problems and struggles are. We had Josh Geigel on, who's the CEO of Virgin Hyperloop. Um, and he's a pretty similar background, like a hardcore engineer moving into sort of entrepreneur and manager. 
and he sort of said that it's like a very different happiness when you like it's something to sit down and solve a mathematical problem and like get an answer but it's like a different sort of experience when you put a team together and you're able to solve a, a problem together so yeah there's definitely something yeah. valuable in that yeah you know my role now at uh, axiom so when i started at axiom last january january of 2020 uh, I was one of two engineers. Um, we only had 17 people in the company. And we were a couple weeks away from winning the Port Award, which is um, an opportunity to build our space station off of the forward node of the ISS. But once we won that award, then my job has been to build the team. And so now we have 135 engineers uh, on the team across all spacecraft disciplines, uh, total organizations over 200. And so uh, to your point, it's been just a blast, you know, building the team and interviewing people and hiring people and organizing and, and getting everyone on the same page and, and going in the same direction and working personnel problems that are natural when you have a group um, that large. And so that part becomes, you know, just as fascinating and, and satisfying as solving the engineering problems. Do you still do engineering problems? Um, at a certain level where, um, you know, when you get to a certain level, your role in engineering problems is more, Hey, did you think about this or, um, did you uh, verify your analysis through a test? Um, and so it's more um, guidance and mentoring and, and uh, asking questions. You know, um, I'd say that you get to a point where I, I can tell if a number is too big or too small, but I don't know how to produce the number anymore. You know, I, I know what SolidWorks does and how it works and, and all of its nuances, but I don't know how to get on and, and actually use the tool. Um, so it's more about that. It's more about mentoring and guidance. And, and also at Axiom, it's about setting a certain uh, culture. And so the culture we want is a culture of rapid development, um, experimentation, not being afraid to have a little smoke coming out of the lab once in a while, you know, really try to push this idea of build a little, test a little, see what works, what doesn't, not be afraid of failure. And so really it's a lot of uh, pushing that kind of culture. So speaking of Axiom, I'm interested in sort of what pushed you <clears throat> to leave like the public space industry and move into the private space industry. Yeah. So um, I, I knew I wanted to do something in the um, private sector at some point and I got my MBA in 1993 uh, and then still stayed at NASA another 20 years um, but I reached a point um, been at NASA about 28 years um, I was at an age where if I was going to leave um, that was the time uh, otherwise it would have just made sense to just stay until retirement at NASA but I wanted to do something different and so I kind of made it known that um, I was looking for a change and, and happened to, again, um, a bit of a lucky circumstance. I uh, came across a gentleman named Cam Gaffarian, 
uh, Cam uh, owned a company called SGT, um, and it was one of the largest NASA contractors that no one had ever heard of. Um, he was always in the top 10 contractors, you know, and besides Lockheed and Raytheon and Boeing, and then there'd be SGT. So he had a, a large uh, engineering service company. Um, but I really liked Cam, Cam's approach. You know, he was dedicated to the NASA mission and wanted uh, to do uh, great things in space. And so it was a natural place for me to go. And, and uh, uh, so I worked for Cam, did a lot of different things uh, in his uh, business. And then it was Cam really that encouraged me to start the uh, robotics company. Um, you know, again, another great example of uh, a, a good leader that isn't trying to hold on to everybody, right? He, he really wanted what was best for me. And, and I'd stayed in contact with a couple guys from when I ran the robotics group at NASA and we had some ideas on robotics and it was a time in which uh, lots of people were wanting robots and intelligent automation. And so uh, started the company and really Cam encouraged uh, me to do so. Um, so. So is your robotics company still operating? It is. It is. Okay. Um, we uh, focused a lot in oil and gas and very early on uh, had customers. Schlumberger was a big customer and then became an investor in the company. And then uh, Transocean became an, another investor. Transocean is one of the largest offshore drilling. And we had a, a, an interesting idea about a subsea robot that um, would really change how subsea services are done and, and be much more economical um, for oil companies to, to, to develop um, subsea fields. And then it turned out that robot had lots of applications in defense. And that's really where the company is primarily now is uh, building um, a uh, very capable subsea robot um, primarily for defense, uh, to be able to take things apart and put things together, uh, in the ocean, uh, autonomously. But yeah, there was a time period where I, I, um, you know, and this, these sort of things happen too, right? We had taken investment from these investors and, and they wanted us to go a certain direction, which I didn't think was the right direction for the company and for the people in the company. And, we argued over it for most of a year. Uh, and then uh, it got to a point where we agreed that uh, it was time for me to, to leave. And so I sold my interest in the company and was looking around for uh, the next thing to do and, and uh, happened to reacquaint uh, with some old friends at Axiom and, and really got excited about what they were doing. Um, and so, Couple of beers later, uh, with the CEO, uh, I I joined, and it's been fun ever since. I know you worked on Robonaut two during your time at NASA. How important was that, and the lessons learned there in kind of the founding of Houston Mechatronics? Yeah, oh, it was critically important. You know, much of the Robonaut team uh, are at Houston Mechatronics now, and certainly a lot of that technology that we developed. Um, is part of uh, Houston Mechatronics DNA for sure. Um, and, and that's why I think it was the right time to start the company is because we realized we were sitting on, 
you know, some of the best robotic technology and more importantly, had developed a bunch of really, really capable and smart people in robotics. And so uh, a, a great team to form a company around and to go off and, and try to commercialize some of those um, technologies. And, and Robonaut was, a, you know, an amazing machine, probably a little ahead of its time. You know, um, it, uh, you know, we flew Robonaut to the ISS and the idea was it would be an assistant for the crew and, and could do things, sort of menial tasks, uh, wiping down handrails. And eventually the plan was to be able to send it out uh, to do maintenance activities so you wouldn't have to send a crew out. But um, again, a little ahead of its time. So it, it was, it's still, that technology is still not quite mature enough to have a practical application, but um, certainly push the limits of um, robotics technology for sure. And I always tell people too, you know, someday, you know, um, you all are, are uh, you know, sometime in, in the next 20 years, you'll be able to go to a store and buy a home robot, you know, a humanoid robot that can do the dishes and clean the house and you download apps to play tennis with it or whatever. And, and those machines will, will trace their heritage to, to Robonaut. I'm pretty sure, you know, it's just been a, an amazing uh, vehicle to, to develop those technologies. With upcoming lunar and eventual Mars missions, do you hope there might be a Robonaut along some of those initial astronauts? Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, always the dream, you know, cause the crew won't always be there. Um, and so having a, a robot that can use the same tools as the crew and uh, be able to expand the Mars base or lunar base or to do maintenance while the when people aren't there, I, I think those things are very, very important. And also to be able to send it out um, and do dangerous things. You know, it's, it's still a very dangerous thing to put a crewman in a spacesuit and have them go out and do work. And so anytime you could send a robot to do that, you're, you're better off. So, yeah, I, I definitely think robots and especially humanoid robots are, are in the future of um, human space flight. And, 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 you know, that was really why we built a humanoid robot is because uh, the world is, is built for humans and the International Space Station is built for humans and the future lunar base will be built for humans. And so having a humanoid robot that can interact with the environment in the same way that a person does, it can, you know, open doors and hatches and use the same tools. There's a, just a huge advantage um, uh, to having that kind of capability. And plus the first thing you learn building a humanoid robot is you learn how remarkable humans are. And so our hands, you know, are amazing tools where we can do so many different things. And so building a robot that has that same capability um, allows you to do all kinds of things and especially allows you to do things that you didn't imagine when you first built it. So, yeah, along those lines, I wanted to ask you, what do you think, like, the biggest limitations to Robonaut were? You said it was a little too soon. Maybe yeah. what were some of the limitations that it couldn't do? It was probably a little... Um, you know, and this is probably true of every technology when it first emerges. It's just a little too delicate where you got to have engineers that are coaxing along or, or recognize that it's not quite working properly. There would be some, there, there would be this indicator 
we, we would have people come into the lab because uh, uh, it was a famous part of the tour and you'd get to shake hands with Robonaut. And so Robonaut would, would find you, you know, in its vision system and, and grab your hand and do a little squeeze. But we always knew when the demo was um, close to not working is there'd be one finger that would start to twitch. And uh, so you'd see the engineers in the background, you know, typing away, trying to uh, reset the Robonaut. And usually we'd be able to do it without the visitor noting uh, it, but it was just a little delicate. And I think kind of true of most um, new technologies where it takes a while to, to really build up robustness and, and, and have it be able to be operated by uh, a non-engineer or, you know. I wanted to go back to your experience with ISS. Um, you were sort of there at the beginning and you worked on GNC, Guidance, Navigation, and Control. And I think it's kind of funny because maybe when people think of like Guidance, Navigation, and Control for a space station, they're like, it's just, you know, in a stable orbit. What, what does that mean? So right. can you describe like what you did with that team and sort of why the ISS needs that team? Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of interesting things about the ISS that I think not a lot of people realize, but when, uh, we decided to build the station with the Russians. Um, the GNC system became um, split between the Russians and the US side. And so now we can't really control the station without both of us. Um, the Russians provide the thrusters, the propulsion system, and then we provide um, the navigation sensors and what are called control moment gyros. And so one of the reasons you need GNC on a space station that's just uh, boring holes in the sky is that you need to control the uh, attitude of the station. Um, we generally want um, the uh, long axis of the station parallel to the Earth. So you have to continually change and, and, and maneuver the station as it goes around the orbit in order to keep it in that attitude. And then there's all kinds of other constraints too. There are thermal constraints. So we want to control the attitude to protect um, certain sun angles and you want to be able to generate enough power. So you're tracking with the solar rays and the solar rays when you're moving those cause disturbances in the station. Um, we also have to do uh, debris avoidance maneuvers. Um, those are actually becoming more and more common. So debris is tracked, debris of a certain size is tracked by um, US Air Force Space Command, and occasionally they will alert NASA that there's going to be a conjunction or a, a, a near, uh, you know, a near miss, and so the station has to do uh, avoidance maneuvers. So it has to, you know, boost to a higher altitude to avoid some of those um, possible um, debris uh, events. So those are the kind of guidance and nav um, and control problems that you have. And then an interesting one is on these control moment gyros. So they're giant uh, wheels. They weigh about 260 pounds and they're, um, they're revolving at about 6,000 RPMs, I think. And there's four of them. And so those big gyros uh, are what is used to control the attitude. But as you go through the orbit and are constantly changing, those uh, gyros uh, get saturated is what um, the term is. 
And so when they're saturated, we then call on the Russians to fire thrusters to desaturate the CMGs. So it's quite a uh, orchestra between uh, us and the Russians. And one of the things I did was I built a, a laboratory uh, where we tested for the first time the U.S. and Russian computers and talking together uh, all in the, for the first time. What was that like? Work. I'm sure you had direct contact with them, right? What was that like yeah. working with, you know, the Russians in different language across the okay. world? I mean, that oh, must yeah. have been an international cooperation. Yeah, and and very difficult, and and very soon after the fall of the Soviet Union as well, and so the. Russia was generally in turmoil. And when you visited, you realized in many ways it's a third world country. You know, it's a third world country with a world-class space program and 20,000 nuclear warheads. Uh, but in many ways, there it was a very strange experience. Um, and so the meetings were very tedious, you know, translator uh, through the whole thing because we certainly didn't speak Russian and very few of them spoke English. Um, so it would be, uh, you know, everything took two or three times as long to, to work through um, uh, problems. And then when you're trying to work through technical problems, there's, there was just um, even the terms or the, the ways we each solved the problems were so different that it was easy to misunderstand each other. So it took a long time to, to work through those. Yeah, that was your introduction to management and yeah. leadership, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> Baptized by fire. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is the Russian vehicle the only one that can currently do like saturation burns and boost burns? Yeah. Now, um, one of the things that we're doing at Axiom is that we... Um, each one of our modules will be a spacecraft because we get delivered to orbit either by SpaceX or Blue Origin. And then we have to rendezvous with the ISS and, and, and be berthed. So every one of our modules will have um, thrusters. And so we could potentially become um, a source of uh, desaturation for the ISS once we're there. Oh which might become important. The Russians are certainly talking about not supporting ISS, you know, after 2025. Wow. So for those who don't know what Axiom Space is, could you give us kind of a brief overview of what the company's vision is and as well as how it kind of fits into our current space climate of LEO destinations contracts, Russia building their own space station, where does Axiom Space kind of fall into that? Yeah. So uh, Axiom is building the world's first commercial space station. So it is a privately funded uh, endeavor to build a commercial space station. Um, now, we won the opportunity to build our space station off of the forward node of the ISS, which is a, an advantage in a couple ways. Uh, one, we get power from the ISS when we're attached and we can get some thermal control. And then early on, uh, we can use the communications to the ground through the ISS. So it's kind of like going camping and you got running water and, and uh, electricity. And it's not until we get our fourth module attached to the ISS that we then uh, can be independent of the ISS. We'll have our own um, um, solar arrays and ability to generate uh, adequate power and thermal control. We'll have an airlock. Uh, 
And so a couple of advantages. So it's very similar or very analogous to how NASA supported um, SpaceX and, and others in developing commercial launch capability. So there's a real business case for NASA to um, get away from the ISS and to have a commercial destination. And so of the three and a half billion dollars a year that NASA spends on the ISS, only about 500 million of that is spent on science and technology development and, and uh, you know, human physiology uh, assessments. And the rest is spent on just maintaining the ISS. So if there were commercial destinations, then NASA could continue to spend the 500 million on science and technology development, but it frees up 3 billion to go on to the moon and Mars. So there's a real business case for NASA to, to help uh, promote uh, low earth orbit destinations. And so that's the contract that we have. And, and the contract doesn't pay for development of the station, it really pays for insight. So, um, you know, NASA of course is very interested when we're attached that when we turn the lights on, it doesn't dim the lights on their side and we're sharing atmosphere. So they wanna understand how we're scrubbing CO2 and generating oxygen. and and so there's a whole bunch of requirements that come with being attached to the ISS. And so this NASA contract that we have really pays for us to provide them the insight and uh, information and data so that they can be comfortable that it's okay for us to come and, and, and be attached. And then of course, from a business standpoint for us, it's, it's an opportunity to be neighbors for a while, for a few years. And then we hope that, um, come the end of ISS life, that we are the logical place for NASA to, to continue to, to do science and technology development and fly NASA astronauts. In addition, though, um, we really see uh, an amazing opportunity in commercial space um, in lots of different areas. One is certainly flying private astronauts, but we think the big opportunity is um, in-space manufacturing. So being able to make things in space that you can't make uh, on the ground. And there's been a lot of promising experiments on ISS. Um, you know, there's a fiber optic cable that has a hundred times more transmission length. that has been demonstrated on ISS um, doing bioprinting of perfect retinal implants, but NASA is not really allowed to commercialize those things or to build those things at scale. And so having a commercial space station, uh, we're able to take some of those promising technologies and, and make them at scale for customers. So in the future, we might build an entire module for a customer so that they can uh, scale up some manufacturing process. And we really think that you know, 15 years from now or 20 years from now, we're gonna have all kinds of objects in our lives that we can't imagine how we lived without them and they will have been manufactured in space, you know, manufactured using that um, unique microgravity, whether it's some kind of special alloy or perfect retinal implants or some kind of protein crystal that allows better drug discovery. So that's our, our main goal is to provide a a place where companies can really develop um, that manufacturing um, technology. So the transition to the private industry has a lot of opportunities um, in terms of 
how you make something uh, and sending it up to space. Are there going to be some major like technical technological advancements and upgrades of an Axiom space station compared to the ISS? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're certainly using a lot of lessons learned from the 20 years or so flying ISS. And of course, our CEO is uh, the former program manager of the ISS. He ran, he ran the uh, ISS for about 11 years. So he knows all of those uh, lessons learned for sure. So um, in many ways, we're trying to simplify things. Uh, here, here's an example. When uh, I built that GNC lab where the, we, for the first time, had the U.S. GNC flight computer talking to the Russian flight computer. That U.S. flight computer was a million-dollar Honeywell processor. Um, we're not doing that. Uh, you know, we're using uh, a lot of um, processors that are used in automobiles today. You know, a modern automobile has 80 million lines of software code, does a lot of processing, and so... Our flight computer is going to be about $3,000. Um, and so we're just taking advantage of those kind of um, advances in various technologies, whether it's networking, computing, uh, even robotics. Um, you know, we'll eventually have a, a large robot arm like the one on ISS, but uh, the difference is, uh, is quite stark in it, its capabilities just because robotics has advanced a lot in the last 25 years. And so um, also some differences are just focusing on cost and designing for cost and designing for maintainability and um, upgradability and really focusing on those things because we have to build a station that's cost less to operate than the revenue we can generate from it. And that's not always what NASA's mission is, right? NASA's mission is solving a hard problem and building the first ISS was a hard problem. And so there's lots of um, engineering solutions or choices that were made mainly just to solve a hard problem that end up costing a lot to, to do. So shorter answer is we're just focusing on, on really what's out there and, and using a lot of non-traditional aerospace things like using automotive parts and and uh, uh, solutions from other industries. So I know you also have a couple missions contracted for the Crew Dragon to bring uh, Axiom astronauts, uh, I believe the first private astronauts to the ISS. Um, how does that kind of fit into um, the Axiom space station and where you all are going as a company? Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, in addition to the, the port award that that allows us to build our station off of the ISS. We have an agreement with NASA that allows us to fly private astronauts to the ISS. And our first crew will go uh, uh, February of next year and four people. One is a former NASA astronaut and the other three are, are private astronauts. And, and so um, it has a few functions. One, it allows us to really um, exercise our training for, for private astronauts, our, um, uh, our mission control and how we interact with the ISS during those missions. So it's in many ways sort of a precursor to, to how we want to fly our, 
private astronauts to our own station. So it helps us learn how to do that. And then there's just a very practical reason too. It's, it's, it provides revenue uh, for us and uh, allows us to, to develop that part of um, the industry as well. Because we do think that in addition to manufacturing, and we, we really believe that manufacturing becomes the dominant uh, reason to have a commercial station, but there's also in the near term opportunities to, you know, fly private astronauts. And, and of course, a lot of those are high wealth individuals, but we also are um, talking to lots of folks that, um, you know, their country doesn't participate in the ISS and they still want to fly their own astronauts, whether they're, you know, in the Air Force or for that country. But there's lots of interest in, in other countries flying their astronauts to um, for their own country's prestige or for their own technology experiments and, and development. Does the ISS have life technically till 2024 currently? Yes, there is a, I think a bill that's in Congress to extend the life to 2030. Um, and so somewhere between 2028 and 2030 is probably where uh, the end of ISS life ends up. And our plan is our fourth module flies in 2027, end of 2027. And so we're, we want to be prepared for uh, and, and have our full capability by the time the ISS life ends. I'm curious how dependent you are on the ISS in the early stages. Um, and then what's your timeline for being fully independent? Yeah. So the first module flies in September of 24. And then the next two are about six to nine months uh, each uh, after that. And we don't get full capability until the fourth module. So the fourth module is our power thermal module. So it has large solar arrays, allows us to generate about the same amount of power that the ISS can generate. Also has an airlock so that we can do um, spacewalks to do maintenance and things like that. Um, so we're relatively dependent on the ISS for a couple of things, um, power when we're attached, um, thermal control, and then, uh, at least for the first two modules, the space to ground communication where we route that through the ISS, we'll have our own capability to do space to ground communication in our third module, potentially as early as the second module. So those are the three big areas that, um, that we need the ISS for. Now we can generate enough power to sort of keep it alive, um, you know, without the ISS. But if in order to do experiments to host uh, astronauts, uh, we, we need the power from the ISS. And what what is your background currently? It is actually a rendering of uh, crew quarters. So the first two modules will each have four of these. Uh, crew cabins. So each crew cabin has a window that looks at the earth and a infotainment center. Um, some interesting uh, storage. So we actually have a couple mock-ups of, of this and uh, we have some soft goods engineers figuring out how to how to make these blankets that are integrated with lights and things like that. Well, you're going to make current astronauts pretty jealous on the ISS. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You know, that's been an interesting problem for me that I hadn't faced in all of my career, which is, is designing something for a certain aesthetic as well, right? Um, 
all of my previous careers is building stuff that it has functionality and you don't worry about so much what it looks like. And so for our station though, we're, we're trying to pay attention to that because one, um, another thing we think is uh, a market is people want to fly uh, products and do commercials and product placement and things like that. Another area that NASA is not allowed to do. And so having a, a more aesthetic look to uh, the station is, is one of our goals. And also it's, um, you know, if you look at the ISS um, picture of the inside of the ISS, it looks like a crazy person's garage. There's just stuff everywhere. There's wires everywhere. And we think that having a, a cleaner look also reduces uh, how much training you have to do. And we're going to try to uh, be smart about um, interfaces where all the interfaces look the same, whether it's a, a life support box or an avionics box, they all open in the same way. Um, I tell my engineering team that we should, our goal should be to, to be able to completely dismantle the station with just five tools. Uh, and so trying to promote those kind of goals uh, in building our station is uh, important. So space tourism has been something that's kind of been um, a dream for a while and now starting to become more reality with Richard Branson's flight today and, and such. Uh, is Axiom realistically the first space hotel? Yes, yes. Um, we, we don't like saying that, um, you know, because we really do think that um, the th the the opportunity that we're building is this manufacturing base that is going to change the world. You know, we're going to figure out things to make in space that uh, will change the world. It'll make life better for everyone. Um, now, along the way, um, there's going to be some space tourism and, and hotels in space and, and movies made and, and, probably some crazy things like zero G ping pong and uh, other sporting events that uh, get done in space. But uh, I think all those things are, are a small part. Um, I think there's some really interesting, just real work and, and, and real products to make that uh, make life better for everybody. You guys are in a really interesting position because as far as I'm aware, there's no government plans to build another space station. So sort of in 10 years, you know, Axiom Space Station might be the only U.S. space station. Right, so right. what does that mean for you all in terms of responsibility? Um, how are you working with the government with that? I also remember, this is a long question, but I remember there being some rumors of like, maybe you guys taking some modules from the current space station. Is that still a plan? And sort of how does that feel to maybe be the sole remaining space station in 10, yeah, 15 yeah. years? Well, it's certainly a great opportunity. And, and that's why, you know, we're so pleased to have this, um, to won this contract with NASA to, to build off of the ISS. Because um, it, it creates that relationship so that we want to be able to build the station that NASA would want to use. So, um, and one way we're doing that is we're looking at the current uh, experiments and the current capability on ISS and figuring out how we would be able to uh, just pass that through the hatch and install it you know, on our side. And 
we're using the same birthing mechanisms uh, so that we could take modules from the ISS that made sense to take. And there may be some like even from like the European Space Agency, uh, we're in some discussions with them about, you know, what is their future uh, look like uh, after ISS and, you know, they want to have their capability. And of course, there's a Japanese external um, laboratory that's on ISS and um, certainly interested in, in keeping that going as well. So we're, uh, the shorter answer is we're working very closely with NASA and understanding the requirements that NASA and NASA's partners have uh, in terms of technology development and experiments on, on, in space. And we want to be able to provide at least or better uh, that capability. I believe the ISS might be the most expensive man-made thing ever. Um, what does that mean to one, be trying to bring that to its private side and do that in a cost-efficient manner? And on the flip side of that, what do we do with an old defunct space station, essentially? What is like the future of the ISS post-2030? Yeah. yeah. So once uh, funding ends for the ISS, um, NASA will put it on a trajectory that puts it into the Pacific Ocean. So it's going to be a spectacular uh, re-entry uh, and will mostly burn up, but there'll be parts that make it to the, to the ocean. So that's the end of ISS, you know, and, and NASA will want to do that in a controlled manner. You don't want to just abandon it and, and have it land on Los Angeles or Washington, D.C. or Paris. So um, it'll be put on a controlled re-entry. Um, as for the cost, you know, generally estimated about $100 billion uh, to build. So uh, we certainly aren't going to spend $100 billion. We're actually going to probably spend um, one one hundredth of that. And it seems like, well, how is that possible? And, and it's possible for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is just taking advantage of advances in technology. It's just... You know, our flight computer is going to cost $3,000 and the flight computers on station cost a million. So there's just lots of examples of that where we're just going to take advantage of advances uh, in technology. But also, I think it's important to realize that um, NASA has a lot of other constraints that aren't just about building a program. Um, and so the International Space Station was as much about building a relationship between the U.S. and the Russians as it was about building a space station and uh, also building a coalition of, of many countries, whether it's the Japanese or European Space Agency. So that comes at a tremendous cost uh, in order to incorporate those other entities. So a lot of cost is, is because of that. Um, and, and again, it's because NASA has other objectives other than just building a space station. And then the other piece, which um, isn't always appreciated, is just the funding profile, um, especially in the early development years of ISS. It would have been much more efficient to be able to spend uh, a bigger amount of money than uh, was in the NASA budget. So the budget for the ISS program was relatively flat at two and a half billion dollars a year. But there were periods in the beginning where you really wanted to spend 10 billion um, 
you know, and then spend one billion in the subsequent years. But NASA just didn't have that luxury. And so there were a lot of things that were very inefficient in their development because of the funding profile. And so all those things together end up with a hundred billion dollar uh, ISS. And so we just don't have a lot of those constraints as a private company. You know, even things, and this is a bit cynical, but it, it, it's the truth is, you know, NASA also um, divides work across congressional districts, right? There's a reason that part of the ISS is done in Alabama and in Houston and California, you know, because there's lots of um, congressional interest in having jobs in, in that particular area. And so all those things cause inefficiency too. It's just harder to integrate when you have your workforce spread across uh, lots of different places in the country. It's not what you would normally choose to do. And so again, we don't have that constraint. And so we're able to do things more efficiently. I think one of the common digs at NASA is like the biggest job creation program in the history of the United States. Um, so I'm curious, where does Axiom see, where do you guys see yourselves in you know, 20 years? Um, are you having one big space station? Is it multiple different space stations, different orbits? Can you send one to the moon? You know, where do you guys see yourselves in 20 years? Yeah, I, what we're focused on building is we want the capability to fly humans in space. And so we're building an engineering team for the long haul that can do that can solve that problem, which is a difficult problem. There's only been three countries in the world that have managed to marshal the resources and technology to do that, to solve that problem. So we want to have that capability. And so then that allows us to be flexible. If there's an opportunity to build a space station around the moon and, and to manufacture things that we're mining on the moon, then we'll do that. If it makes sense to build a really large rotating space station that creates some artificial gravity that might house hundreds, if not thousands of people, then we'll do that. Um, but we really think that the next 20 years and really the next 50 years, we are um, building uh, destinations in space and, and those destinations uh, are gonna look a lot different than what we're currently building. And they're probably gonna be in different places than we're currently building. And one thing that is on our, our uh, set of goals and we're thinking about is how do you build modules different than how we're doing it now? You know, now the size of the module is constrained by the launch vehicle that we can send it on. So it's a certain diameter limitation, but we're very interested in how would we maybe manufacture a module in space and, and therefore you're constructing it as big as you want it to be or need it to be. Um, and how do you do that? And we're talking to some companies that have some interesting um, additive manufacturing or 3D printing capability where maybe we're printing modules in space um, and then also looking at inflatable modules and, and things like that. So I think the future station probably looks a lot different and probably has a lot of capability, but the core of our expertise is going to be, how do you, how do you build a human, um, space system?
You mentioned inflatable modules, and naturally that makes me think of Bigelow. Um, people might not think that like there is competition in creating a space station, but there kind of is. So can you talk about what sets you guys apart from your competitors? Yeah. Um, one, I think we, we certainly have some expertise and, and great leadership that has expertise in this area. Um, the opportunity to build our station off of the ISS again is an advantage. It's just easier. You know, we don't have to have everything. We don't have to have solar power right away. So it's, it literally is like going camping and having running water and electricity. You know, we, we can build our station in stages. Um, we're well-funded. Um, so I think those are our advantages, but we're not naive about competition. Um, and really our natural competitors are the richest man in the world and the second richest man in the world, right? Um, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, if uh, they look up one day and say, hey, this, these Axiom folks are really onto something about this in-space manufacturing, you know, they have tremendous resources to throw at the problem uh, and certainly are working, you know, around this, uh, this area. So um, we're certainly not naive that there is uh, competition. But we also realize, though, that if the market really is as big as we think, that the opportunity to do manufacturing, then there's room for lots of players, right? There, there, and there will be lots of folks that are building stations and doing manufacturing in space. And that's really a good thing, right? There, it's sometimes you don't want to be the only person developing something because that might be a sign that the thing you're developing isn't uh, viable. Right. So in a past episode, we had uh, a jaw on our podcast, uh, who is kind of a leading expert in space junk um, and current LEO orbits. So I guess in terms of going and manufacturing in that orbit, how does kind of space environment uh, and keeping that area clean play into what you do? Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a huge issue that the whole community has to address. So, you know, we have to be very cognizant of our responsibility to not create a bunch of space junk. And uh, so right now we're, we're not, but it's easy to conceive that there might be some manufacturing process that somebody wants to undertake that might create a bunch of um, junk or, or, or things to throw away. But it's certainly a, a big problem that needs to be addressed and solved. And uh, whether that's going and building something that scoops up uh, the debris, which is a hard problem, but certainly managing um, the environment so that we don't create any more uh, than we have to. You know, and um, the Elon Musk's uh, satellite system is certainly putting up a lot of uh, satellites, right? I think he's well over a thousand now. And uh, he's, he deorbits some uh, pretty regularly, but managing that whole uh, environment is going to be important. And I think it's a problem that no good solution at this point. I think you mentioned that when you were younger, you always wanted to be an astronaut. Do you plan on eventually going to your own space station? Uh, that would certainly be uh, a, a Fun thing. I would certainly uh, not uh, shy away from that opportunity. You know, you know, we think that at some point 
there's probably a transition. So, you know, right now it takes a lot of money to get to buy a ticket to go. But we think that there's some period where it becomes more like um, working offshore, like on an offshore drilling rig, where specialized training and specialized expertise and, and relatively hard to get there. But people are sort of routinely doing work there. Um, and so, and then the next phase after that is where, yeah, you can go and buy a ticket for a reasonable price and take the family to space. Um, but we're a, a bit of a ways away from that next stage where there's sort of the common um, engineer or worker in space. But uh, yeah, I often joke that um, going to put some system on an Axiom station that requires my thumbprint to activate. <laughs> yeah, maybe in 10 years, that won't just be a Zoom background. That would be the real deal. Right, right. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, since you have experience at both NASA and now the private space industry, what is sort of the biggest operational difference that you see, like maybe besides the funding aspect? Um, is there like an organizational difference? Yeah, I think um, certainly NASA has a long history of capability. So one of the things that have been a challenge for us is one, we have to build a team. So we have to find all these experts across pretty diverse um, disciplines for a spacecraft, but it's also building all the laboratories and test facilities, you know, so all that stuff exists at NASA. And so Figuring out how to build all that uh, has certainly been a challenge. But I think in general, um, organizationally, there's, there, we're able to be leaner. You know, we get to create our own organization. And in big institutions like NASA, the organization just is there and it's always been there. And there's a certain level of uh, organization and and it's just hard to change that. So we just have an opportunity that we can make decisions faster. We, we don't have as many people that we're accountable for to um, our people. I think have a, probably more individual responsibility because we're a smaller team. Um, you know, at NASA, there might be 30 people that, that do stress analysis, but actually there's two. And so there's just a lot more responsibility personally um so there's i don't know if i answered the question very well but those kind of organizational differences i think the biggest problem with a organization that's been around for a long time is there's just a certain momentum and uh, inertia that's hard to get away from i mean it would be impossible for nasa to to go and say hey i don't want to have these six levels of management anymore i want to have three you just can't do it you know it's just too hard to do so as CTO and an engineer by trade, what would you say is the hardest part of building a space station? Um, I think the hardest part is that there's all of these interactions and it's a very multidisciplinary problem. Um, you know, we have to have a guidance and nav system and that means we have to have a propulsion system and then the propulsion system has high pressure. And uh, how do you make sure those things, uh, you know, uh, don't affect the crew in the cabin and, and 
when we have crew in the cabin, we have to generate oxygen, we have to scrub CO2, um, we have to monitor for trace contaminants, we have to provide food and, and water and, and hygiene. And um, it's just a complicated multidisciplinary problem. And I think that's really the challenge. The individual um, technologies, whether it's avionics or structures or propulsion, they're not um, science problems, they're just engineering problems. But, and, and each of them individually is, is pretty manageable. It's really the whole problem. It's all the multidisciplinary, how do you build a thing and have everything come together at the end is the, is the challenge. So I know crew resupply is a huge part of the ISS. Um, is there a future that you see where we have a self-sustaining Axiom space station? Yeah, you know, we're certainly trying to uh, close the loop to the greatest extent uh, possible and certainly beyond what's been done uh, by ISS. So, you know, we're recycling water and turning urine back to water. Um, we're going to try to manage our trash and get all the water out of uh, all the trash so that we can minimize the resupply. But there will always be some resupply required. You still got to fly food up. And um, although we're also looking at growing food, it's just a hard thing. It takes just a lot of area uh, and space and volume to, uh, to grow enough food to be sustainable. But one of the interesting things we're doing also is that um, our propulsion system is a uh, methane and oxygen system. And so we are going to take the CO2 from the crew, the, the exhale from the crew, and we're going to take the CO2 and turn it into methane uh, through what's called the Sabatier process. And so our calculations show that when we have a permanent crew of about six, we can generate all the propulsion that we need um, just from their exhaling CO2. So that's gonna be a huge uh, game changer for us. So we will get to a point where we'll never have to fly up any more fuel. And in fact, once we get more crew than that, we can generate excess fuel that we might be able to create a business with and refueling satellites or space tugs and things like that. Well, but that's one that I've never be, heard before. And I've never heard you talk about before, actually. And I think that's massive. I mean, yeah. so what is the, are you, do you plan on changing orbits with this fuel? What do you, your station keeping? Yeah, it's station keeping, uh, you know, debris avoidance, um, maneuvers. Um, and then also, you know, there may be one difference about our station too, is because every module is its own spacecraft, there may be times where, or we may get to a point where a particular module has passed its life or is not usable anymore. So we can detach it and then have it uh, controlled reentry into the atmosphere. But also we think we're gonna need some reentry modules. You know, if we're successful at manufacturing things in space, we're gonna need to bring them home. And so creating fuel for, for those kind of vehicles, uh, as well as vehicles that may change orbits, you know, maybe there's a, uh, an opportunity to manufacture geostationary uh, satellites in space. And then, you know, you got to boost them up to, to uh, geo. And then there may be some point where we have um, a particular 
manufacturing process that is either very hazardous or maybe very, very sensitive, where even a crew person <clears throat> pushing off the wall, <clears throat> excuse me, would, would affect that um, um, manufacturing. So we might have modules that separate from the main station, do their manufacturing and then reattach and get unloaded and, and then reload the raw material. So there might be all kinds of uh, those sort of things that require some propulsion capability. So how long do you expect a module to survive? Yeah, you know, we're generally designing everything for a 30 year life. Um, but knowing that we want to be able to upgrade the avionics and computers every five years, like you do your laptop. So we're building a lot of upgradability into the systems as well. Um, so that could mean that it has really indefinite life. The hard structure generally is designed for a 30 year life. And then you just have to do some analysis uh, at some point to prove that it can go beyond that, which is what's been done on ISS. You know, it's, it's really beyond its original design life in many areas. And, and so lots of work was done to make sure that, um, you know, the life extension was viable. So is the first Axiom module currently being made in Houston? It is um, currently being made in Italy uh, by uh, Talasalania. So Tazi has built about 50% of the modules on ISS. And so they're building the first two pressure vessels, the primary structure. Um, and so they are the right choice uh, because they have all the tooling and have a giant friction stir welding machine that can make these pressure vessels at that size. And then they will ship the uh, primary structure to Houston and we'll do all the final outfitting and assembly in Houston. So everything else is generally done in Houston and uh, it'll actually be part of our Houston spaceport facility. So uh, Houston has one of the 11 approved spaceports uh, as part of the Ellington Field um, Airport. And so uh, we are building our ultimate facility um, at the spaceport. Uh, it'll, we're gonna break ground this year and be available in about two years, but that facility will house all the, all the teams, all the engineering capability, all the laboratories, all the manufacturing, and we'll do the final assembly of the modules there. And then, uh, roll them out the door and load them onto a plane and take them to the Cape for integration with the launch vehicle. Is the goal to eventually bring all that manufacturing in-house or stay with uh, the Italian manufacturer? Yeah, the goal is to bring it in-house. Um, it's just, a, it's another big undertaking. And so um, at this point, it's just a problem. We just don't have the the bandwidth to solve at the moment. But yeah, we, we really think in general, our philosophy is to do as much in-house as possible. It just gives you greater control over your own destiny. It's, it's really the SpaceX model and Blue Origin. You know, they're doing most everything in-house. And, and so we want to do that as well. So are you allowed to tell me like what percentage of your funding is public versus private? Uh, it's almost entirely privately funded. Um, uh, we did a, a series B round uh, that we closed in January and it's publicly known. It's, uh, um, we raised 130 million 
We're going to raise probably three to four times that this summer in the next round. And then actually we'll probably go public after that. And the, the public uh, round will, will provide all the funding we need. Do you have an idea of how big you expect this market to be? Like when you first launch your station? Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that's hard to predict, but it's, uh, we think it's hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, um, and a combination of private astronauts, manufacturing, uh, marketing, public, you know, uh, product placement, uh, all of those things combined, uh, we think are hundreds of billions of dollars, but it's such a hard thing to predict. It's sort of like trying to predict how big the internet was going to be in 1990. Um, and there's so many new launch providers like coming in the market. Um, you have, I think you mentioned that you can launch on Falcon 9. Are there any other launch providers that you can launch with and are you trying to make it like so that you can be adaptable yeah yeah we're, we're protecting to launch the modules on either the spacex uh dragon heavy or the um blue origin new plan okay. um, blue origin just announced sort of a slip of their schedule to late next year for their first launch so we may end up having to launch on SpaceX for the first couple, but we want to, you know, have options. And so we're protected to fly on either one of those. What excites you the most about Axiom in the next 10 years? Oh, you know, I think uh, one, I get excited about building the team. And uh, I often talk about and, and have people imagine uh, you know, four years from now when we're all uh, down at the Cape and we've just launched the first module and it's just been birthed and how exciting that's going to be. You know, it's a really an amazing thing to take this idea and create something in the world, right? And especially something of that complexity. So that's going to be really um, fun and interesting uh, experience to, to go from literally an idea on a napkin to uh space hardware and especially space hardware of that complexity. So excited about that, but really excited about um, how we're going to um, change the world. You know, we're going to figure out things to manufacture that 20 years from now, we won't know how we live without, um, you know, we're going to create new materials and new things that uh, we won't, we can't imagine how we live without and they all will be made in space. Yeah, you know, it's like the it's like the app store, right? They didn't yeah. know what sort of apps would be developed, but they just created the platform, right. let it you know nourish. So it's it's interesting because you can't even imagine like what you're going to allow, um, right. and that's just a crazy thought. Yeah, yeah, no, it's exactly right, and and we use that analogy actually a lot. And also, if you think about you know, um, there's been some experiments that have flown on ISS that show again you can make a particular kind of fiber optic cable that has a hundred times more capability and there's other things, but there were probably hundreds, if not thousands of other ideas that never went anywhere because there was no place for them to go after the ISS experiment. So there were probably hundreds of people that thought, well, you know, I could spend a million dollars and fly this NASA experiment on ISS and, if it proves to be a viable thing to manufacture, well, then what am I going to do? I, I don't have any place to go manufacture it. So there were probably hundreds of those that never went anywhere because of that. And now 
we have an opportunity that if it is viable, well, we can manufacture it. You know, we can build an entire module for a customer to manufacture that thing. And so I think because of that, it's just uh, leads to all kinds of opportunities that we can't even imagine right now. What advice would you give to an up and coming engineer who wants to be a part of a company like Axiom that is changing the world? Yeah. Uh, apply. Um, we certainly are, are hiring. We want, we're trying to add another um, hundred to our engineering team uh, by the end of this year. Um, but I, I think, you know, if, if you're interested in space and, and you, you go study the right things, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, aerospace engineering, you know, it's such a multidisciplinary problem that no matter what your interest is, if you like you know, electrons, or if you like design and structure, you know, there's a place for you at companies like Axiom for sure. So can we get a, a free night on an Axiom space uh, station? Is that part of this deal? Hey, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's pretty much all I got. That was a lot. I want to thank you so much for coming on, spending an hour of your sure. Sunday with us. Sure. Um, yeah, this was Especially fantastic. during Richard Branson's flight. I know that was an exciting <laughs> moment. <laughs> no i appreciate it it's fun yeah maybe one day we'll have to stop by at the new houston facility it sounds like uh, you're doing it. a lot of really cool things yeah for sure definitely well thank you again and i hope you go enjoy your sunday all right thanks thank, thank you, you.